Consider for a moment this song. That is Thelonious Monk playing not the piano but the celeste, those bell-like tones in the introduction to the song. The song itself is titled Panonica. Monk composed it for a woman named Panonica, the Baroness Panonica de Königswarter, to be accurate. Now, Monk didn't compose songs for any woman, but Panonica, or Nika, was different. To start with, she was a Rothschild, the wealthy Jewish dynasty that essentially was the Bank of Europe for hundreds of years. How Nika came to be the muse and benefactor for Thelonious Monk is what her great-niece Hannah Rothschild focused on in her book, The Baroness, The Search for Nika, The Rebellious Rothschild. Uh, Hannah Rothschild, incredible story here. Some jazz aficionados will know some of the broad strokes of Nika's and Monk's story, but you did some serious digging and research. Before we get to that relationship, though, fill us in a bit on her background. She was born in 1913 into the Rothschild family and the first half of your book kind of reads like uh, Downton Abbey, but with Jews and with, of course, <laughs> the backdrop of growing European anti-Semitism. What were the formative events then that would guide Nika later in life? Well, interestingly, so she was 13, of course, is the year before the First World War. So her first introduction to life was one of, you know, actually heartbreak and people not coming home. And then during that war, her father, um, Charles, who suffered from a kind of mental disorder, if you like, became more and more depressed. And after the war, like many other people, he caught Spanish flu encephalitis. And actually in 1923, he killed himself. So her early years were really marred by terrible tragedy. And the only great things during her childhood were animals. They were a family that loved animals, were surrounded by animals. And also music, because her father had an early record player and would be sent many jazz records from America. So Nika's connection with Thelonious Monk, at first it was very impressionistic. I mean, she heard his masterpiece composition, Round Midnight, and it was as if she had just discovered fire. How and when did they initially meet, and what was the attraction? Well, it's extraordinary, the story. She was actually, three years before she met him in 1951, she was on her way from Europe to Mexico, where her husband was the ambassador, the French ambassador to Mexico. And she stopped off to see a friend, a pianist called Teddy Wilson. And he said, have you ever heard Round Midnight by Felonius Monk? She said, I've never heard of Felonius Monk. Anyway, so he put it on the turntable, and it was literally like a vinyl version of a spell being cast. And she never went home. And she talks about it. She said, I played it 20 times in a row and I never went home. able to communicate with her about that or is this through journals of hers well, that you read? Luckily, I mean, there's, I didn't meet her very, very often. I met her in 1984, 1985 and 1986 and it was the first thing I did when I went to America for the first time was to call her up and I was very, very nervous and I had her telephone number and I rang her up and said, hi, um, I'm your great niece and there was an incredible pause and then she went wild. 
aunt, um, <laughs> which is not quite what you expect from a 71-year-old great aunt. And she said, come and meet me you know, at a club round about midnight, of course. Hmm. And I went downtown and completely terrified. And the only instruction she'd given me, she said, it's on 23rd Street. The only instruction she gave me was, was look out for the Bentley. <laughs> okay, that's not necessarily the kind of normal, you know, kind of instructions you'd get to go and find somewhere. But indeed, parked kind of diagonally, half obstructing 23rd Street, was this Bentley. And next to it, there was a flight of steps, went downstairs to a club. And that's where she was. And indeed, that's where she could be found in a jazz club in New York every night of the week. Right. Now, at this point, uh, Thelonious Monk was still alive in 84? No, he died in 82. In 82. Sadly, I never met him. And in fact, he'd spent the last 10 years of his life in her house in Weehawken, Mm. just across the river, not playing an instrument, really hardly doing anything. He would get up, get dressed, and then lie down again. Right. One thing that did strike me, though, both of them, both Monk and Nika, had kind of a history of mental illness in their families. What's the significance of that? Well, my feeling, again, I was trying to explore why these two very different and disparate people should, you know, end up being such close friends. And one connection that I think is, you know, holds water Monk's father um, was a manic depressive. Certainly, you know, it showed all the signs of manic depression. Nika's father was a schizophrenic who was, you know, driven so distracted by his depression that he took his own life. Monk was diagnosed as a schizophrenic as well. And I really believe that there was some atmosphere, some thing that she saw around Monk that reminded her of her childhood. Mm. And I think that she wanted to help Monk. I think that she couldn't help her father. Nobody could help her father. But I think that she really felt that here was a man she could help, that she did understand. She wasn't frightened of his strange episodes, of his more outlandish behavior, because she'd been brought up with that. Now, Monk was married already to a woman named Nellie. And Nika and Monk, uh, clearly, from your account, loved each other. But were they lovers? And how did Nellie rationalize sharing her husband with this Jewish noblewoman in furs from across the pond? Good question. And, of course, that's what everyone – well, not everybody wants to know. But, I mean, you know, what was at the heart of this relationship? Mm. And I asked every single person who was close to them who was still alive, look, did you see any touchy-feely stuff, on for better expression? Mm-hmm. And everybody said, absolutely not. It wasn't like that. And I think for Nellie, who had been with him since she was 13, who'd suffered, you know, incredible penury and hardship through her husband's not actually earning any money, was frankly quite delighted when this rather rich, you know, woman appeared with a checkbook and Mm. a fabulous Bentley and, you know, absolute unstinting devotion. I'm not saying that, you know, the Monk family used Nika by any, you know, because I think it was a completely mutual interest and dependency. But I think they weren't too bothered that she was, you know, so passionately keen on supporting him. Now, aside from the electric relationship between Monk and Nika, this is a very romantic book for jazz lovers. I'd like you to describe the scenes at some of the after-hours parties with those jazz cats at the Stanhope, that's the hotel in New York where Nika lived. I mean, to start with, how was she able to get all these black musicians inside that segregated hotel? That was a problem. So, And so Nika you know, would have to either smuggle these musicians up in the service elevators Or when she was feeling slightly more kind of like having a major fight, she would march through the lobby, you know, with a musician basically holding one hand and, you know, one with the other hand and the instruments. And they would walk straight through. And, of course, this scandalized the um, hotel management. Right. Anyway, so she insisted that her newfound friends should come back to her 
her apartment in the hotel. She insisted they should order whatever they felt like. And this is after kind of staying up till 2 a.m. on 52nd Street, listening to everybody there. Well, exactly. So they make their way back in the Bentley. The Bentley will be parked badly outside the stand-up. You know, (laughs) in they go, you know, let's order whatever you want from room service. And then the real sessions would start. So, and of course... On 52nd Street, lots of the great musicians were playing in separate little clubs, but that, of course, didn't apply in her apartment. So she had these kind of super groups. People who would never get to play together played together in her suite, and she thought it was incredible. Uh, it was incredible. <laughs> incredible. I mean, can you imagine? And, of course, she recorded lots of that stuff, and the tapes are still in the possession of her children, and hopefully one day they'll come out and they'll be heard by all of us jazz lovers. Yeah, we hope. Hannah Rothschild is the author of The Baroness, A Search for Nika, the Rebellious Rothschild. Thank you very much for bringing out this story about your great aunt and Thelonious Monk. It's a really good read. Thank you so much. You can see a video of Hannah Rothschild explaining various theories on how bebop sax legend Charlie Parker died in Nika's New York apartment in 1955. That's at theworld.org.